Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. I'm Alex Keefe. And I'm Angela Evansy. Welcome to Brave Little State, VPR's people-powered journalism podcast. Where you ask the questions and you vote on which ones VPR should investigate. And this is a very, very exciting episode because today's question is the winner of our first ever voting round. That means you, our brave audience, voted at our website to choose the big question we're covering today. Why are our utility bills so high in Vermont? Also, we tackle a spooky question just in time for Halloween, and we want your help. What are Vermont's most interesting, intriguing, bizarre, mysterious ghost stories? (laughs) But first... Brave Little State is made possible with support from the VPR Journalism Fund and Darn Tough Vermont. For nearly 40 years, knitting premium quality all-weather performance socks in the sock capital of the world, Northfield, Vermont. Darn Tough is committed to making the most comfortable, durable, best-fitting socks money can buy. Okay, deep breath. Before we get digging into this question, we're going to start here with a big, fat disclosure. So, Al, do you want to do this, like, as an interview? Yeah, yeah. Like, I'll, I'll like, set the scene. Just talk it out. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, so a few months back, before we even launched the podcast, we went to the storytelling event in Burlington, remember? Mm-hmm. And, and we wanted to talk about the project to the audience and record some questions from people on tape. Hello. It seems like you have a question. Do you mind if I get it on tape? Go for it. So we hung out in the lobby before and after the show. We talked to a bunch of people. It was obviously really noisy, as you can hear. And we got maybe, what, like a couple dozen questions, including one from this guy. Could you please uh, introduce yourself with your name and where you're from? Sure, I'm Dave Revel from Burlington. Dave Revel from Burlington. So when he introduced himself, we didn't know that name. You had no idea who you were talking to. No idea. Totally had never heard of this guy, which I feel pretty stupid about now. But, you know, people were flooding out of the show. I just kind of grabbed him with my microphone and stuck it in his face. And what is your question? My question is, why are our utility bills so high in Vermont? And what the heck are all those obscure line items and charges on our gas bill and our electric bill? So that was it. I said, thank you. I mean, our whole interaction lasted less than 40 seconds. Yeah. So fast forward several weeks, and we included Dave's question in our first ever voting round, where the idea is that you all get to choose what we cover. 
yeah, it was a good pocketbook question. It was getting a lot of votes in the voting round. But it wasn't until later when one of my colleagues who covers energy and utilities told us who Dave Revel is. My title is Director of Communications at AARP Vermont. And we should disclose that as the Director of Communications, it's kind of your job to get reporters like me to do stories like this one about utility rates in Vermont, right? That's correct. The AARP, in case you don't know, is the group formerly known as the American Association of Retired People. The AARP is an advocacy group. Here in Vermont, one of the things they advocate about is utility bills. It has lobbyists in Montpelier. It regularly fights with utility companies and state regulators about rates. So, yeah, they definitely have an agenda. Oh, and they're also a VPR underwriter. Yeah, also that. So because of all this, we struggled a lot with whether we should even accept Dave's question or cancel the voting round. Because, not to get on our soapbox, but Brave Little State is about including people in the journalistic process who don't usually have a voice in it, meaning not PR professionals. Right, and we decided at some point the question becomes bigger than the person who asked it. And Dave's question about utility bills did win our public voting round, and frankly, it was on us for not recognizing this conflict of interest earlier. So we are tackling the question this month, but first we just wanted to lay it all out and be totally transparent and give you the backstory here. Yeah, and also, unlike our usual process, Dave did not come along on the reporting or any of the interviews for the story which is what we usually try to do with our question askers. Okay, deep breath. (sighs) Big fat disclosure done? Done. Let's go back to the question. Why are our utility bills so high in Vermont? And what the heck are all those obscure line items and charges on our gas bill and our electric bill? Okay, so that seems like a really big question. But first off, what exactly are we talking about when we talk about utilities? Right. So we're talking about electricity and natural gas. Because in Vermont, those utilities are actually allowed to have monopolies. So instead of market competition, driving rates, state regulators help decide rates. And to narrow it even more here, we're only going to talk about electricity in the podcast because the system is way, way, way more complex and it affects way more Vermonters than natural gas. I mean, everybody gets an electricity bill, right? So at bravelittlestate.org, we do dig into natural gas costs, and we have a breakdown of all those bill charges that Dave was asking about. Okay. So, but I mean, it's still a pretty big question and also a loaded one, right? Right. I mean, is it even true that electricity bills here are, quote, so high? Well, if you compare Vermont's bills to the rest of the country, which is what Dave later clarified he was curious about, then actually, no, they're actually not so high. Really? Really? Really. There's this uh, nifty federal agency called the U.S. Energy Information Administration, and it has loads of cool data. And they show Vermont's average residential monthly electric bill was actually cheaper than the national average between 2004 and 2014, which is uh, the most recent data available. Like a little bit cheaper or a lot cheaper? Like 15 bucks a month cheaper. Oh, so that's sort of significant. Yeah, I mean, it's not nothing. For example, in 2014, the average monthly bill in the U.S. was about $114. In Vermont, it was 99 bucks. You see the same thing when you compare Vermont electric bills to other New England states, which I learned is really the more apples-to-apples comparison because that's the grid we're all sort of plugged into. So is that it? Episode over? Bills aren't that high? That's it. Bill's cheap. 
see you in November. No, 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 no. Stop the music. I'm just kidding. We're totally, totally not done. That was a good one, though, right? Yeah, it was good. It's clever. Okay, we're not done because I'm going to throw something else at you here. Okay. Residential electric bills in Vermont are lower than average, but residential electricity prices in Vermont, actually in all of New England, are significantly more expensive than the rest of the continental U.S. More expensive. A lot more. Like the most recent data we have show Vermont at just over 17 cents per kilowatt hour, which is about 40 percent more expensive than the national average. But you just got done saying that we are cheaper. Electricity bills are cheaper, but electricity prices are higher. Okay, I think that might be confusing to people. Right. Um, So say it's your birthday, right? You're going to splurge. You're going to cook yourself like a really nice dinner on your birthday. You're going to go to the store. What are you going to buy? Like, what's the main dish? So ideally, someone else is going to go to the store and cook for me. Right, okay. And they're going to make salmon. Salmon, okay. Yeah. Like fancy, like nice, like wild salmon. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to do wild salmon price per pound with my phone. I'm seeing that the price for wild salmon is like 13, 14, 15 bucks a pound, which is like not cheap, no, right? No, no, yeah. But I imagine, I imagine when you sit down to do your budget every month, you're not like, oh my God, the salmon is killing us. The salmon is totally breaking the bank this month and we can't afford other things, right? No, no, we don't have the line item for the salmon. No, so you don't consume as much salmon. Okay, okay. I think I see where you're going with this very clever analogy. <laughs> right. So your average Vermonter consumes much less electricity than your average American. We're in the bottom fifth of U.S. states when it comes to consumption. The EIA says that's partly because our summers here are pretty mild. You know, we're not running the air conditioner all the time, like in Orlando or Georgia or something like that. But also because Vermont has invested quite a bit in energy efficiency programs. Okay. So that's good news. Bills are cheaper. But why is the electricity that flows to my house in Vermont more expensive than, like, Chicago electricity or Idaho electricity? Well, the answers really get to the very core of Vermont, to our land, our settlement history, even our values. But to explain all this, I'm going to get my car keys, and I'm going to take the podcast on a little road trip here. Later. Later. Okay. So before we get into why electricity prices in New England are higher than in the rest of the country, it helps to know a bit about how electricity even gets to you in the first place, because about three quarters of the electricity in Vermont comes from outside the state. So after it's generated, it has to be carted all the way up here. That's called transmission. But you could think of it as the interstate electricity superhighway. And this highway we're cruising on here is overseen by a nonprofit called ISO New England. We make sure that the amount of power that's flowing across it, which is the result of what people are choosing to buy and sell, can honor the physical limits of that electricity superhighway, if you will. This is Matthew White. He's the chief economist for ISO New England. We're making sure that everybody who's using it is respecting the weight limits of the highway and that things are going where they need to go. And the electricity that's going along this highway is wholesale electricity, sometimes bought by utilities on the wholesale market, which ISO New England also oversees. So we're talking big, big quantities of electricity, like high-voltage tractor trailers speeding over this interstate highway, then branching out into individual states, and then... There's a lot of exit ramps 
off that big superhighway, roughly about a thousand of them. And at these exit ramps, there are toll booths. And this is where retailers, like your local electric utility, they buy the wholesale power that just made the journey all the way up to Vermont. We give you the price at every one of those exit ramps. So if you want to buy and sell, you basically pay the price at your exit ramp. That's the toll that you pay for being on the highway. Charlotte Ansel would know. She's the vice president of power supply at Green Mountain Power, Vermont's biggest utility. They serve about 71% of all electricity customers in Vermont. See, once electricity gets off the highway in Vermont, that's when state regulators and utilities like GMP take over. So that's when I take the energy, that high voltage energy, I take it off of the interstate highway and I go on to the roads and lanes and streets that take me directly to the customer's house or business where they're actually consuming the power directly. In utility talk, these side streets, really all the poles and the wires running up to your home, it's called the distribution side of things. GMP and other utilities might build, own, and operate those side streets, and it's the job of state regulators to monitor them. Okay, so I'm going to take a little pit stop here and turn off the car, because this goofy highway analogy will help us understand why residential electricity prices in Vermont and New England are more expensive than in other parts of the U.S., See, when we're on the highway, wholesale electricity in the region costs about seven or eight cents per kilowatt hour. That's about enough power to binge watch all of Stranger Things on Netflix to give you some idea. And that's about a penny higher than the electricity on other highways and other parts of the country. To understand why, I talked with a guy named Asa Hopkins. I'm not the, uh, the transportation engineer in that analogy, but bigger picture, how much traffic should we be planning for? Should we be planning for heavy trucks or light cars? Hopkins' non-metaphorical title is Director of the Planning and Energy Resources Division at the Vermont Department of Public Service. Remember, instead of market competition in the state, it's the department's job to represent the public interest in setting utility rates. Anyway, Hopkins says there's a simple reason Vermont electricity prices are high compared to other parts of the country. We're at the end of the pipe, at the end of the road for where our energy comes from. The end of the energy road. That is something I heard from almost every source I talked to for this story. And Matthew White, the guy with ISO New England, explains how Vermont's spot on the roadmap presents a couple of issues that make electricity here, and really in all of New England, more expensive, even before it takes that exit ramp. You know, Illinois is sitting on reams and reams of coal. The upper Midwest has a ton of oil. In Ohio and western Pennsylvania, they sit on enormous reserves of shale gas. Uh, New England has none of those, so everything has to be transported in. About half of New England's electricity is generated by natural gas, which has to be piped in from other parts of the country to generate power, which drives up prices all over the region. And once the power is generated, well, even the act of traveling long distances on the electricity superhighway comes with a cost. That's according to Richard Sedano. He led Vermont's Department of Public Service for nine years, and he's now with a nonpartisan nonprofit energy consulting group called the Regulatory Assistance Project, based in Montpelier. If you just pick up your phone, you know sometimes your phone is hot. That means that just in moving electricity around your phone, you're generating heat. Those are losses. There's significantly bigger losses in, in transmission and distribution lines. And so electricity is just lost from when it's put in to when it's delivered. 
So if your phone is getting a little bit warm as we enter the 15th minute of this podcast right now, just imagine that leakage of energy on a much, much bigger scale. And oh yeah, you know this highway we've been talking about the whole time? Somebody's got to pay for that. For example, in addition to the $0.08 for the actual electricity that comes to Vermont on the highway, Charlotte Ansel says GMP, for example, pays about another $0.02 to ISO New England. That's the toll at the exit ramp. You're paying a toll on an interstate for a whole bunch of the interstate that you'll never even use. Like, you live in Vermont, you're just driving on the Vermont part of the interstate. But think about the way transmission expenses work. You're paying for an interstate that covers all of New England. In total, transmission infrastructure costs in New England more than doubled between 2008 and last year. There are debates about whether we even need the sort of improvements ISO New England has been making, whether it's too costly or whether it's necessary to make sure the grid is reliable. But the upshot is that also drives up electricity prices here in Vermont. Okay, take the blinker, take the exit here. You know, we learned that things are a bit more expensive on New England's electricity superhighway, but now that we're here in Vermont, we're going to take the exit now and learn about the residential retail electricity market here. These are the side streets, or as Richard Sedano with the RAP points out, they're often actually dirt roads. Vermont is relatively sparsely populated. Uh, A lot of people live on country roads some distance from each other. That's part of the charm of Vermont. But that charm comes with a price, at least when we're talking about electricity. Christine Hallquist, who heads up the Vermont Electric Co-op, says when it comes to getting power down that country road, it all has to do with economies of scale. You still got to build a mile of power line, right? If that mile of power line is supporting 15 customers versus 150, the individual cost per customer goes up significantly. Yeah, and what's more, we're likely not talking about like a flat, straight country road here. Running power lines through forests and up mountains and down into valleys, all maybe to serve just a few customers, that also contributes to our higher prices in Vermont. But Sedano says that's the rub, because in 21st century America, electricity is a necessity. And there's always going to be a a mission to make sure that everyone has electricity. And so there's always going to be that cost penalty to make sure that everyone has electricity. And it's cost that I think everyone thinks is worth paying. Efforts to get electricity to rural America date back to the 1930s. President Franklin Roosevelt actually signed an executive order creating this whole federal agency charged with doing just that. Now, more than eight decades later, 21st century policymakers in Vermont and utility customers, they don't just want electricity. They want clean electricity that doesn't harm the environment. Charlotte Ansel with Green Mountain Power says that also comes with a cost. Biggest driver is certainly not having coal in the portfolio, which again is something that our customers tell us over and over is incredibly important to them. Coal-generated power is cheap but dirty. Vermont gets almost none of its power from coal, and New England as a whole gets only about 4%. What's more, Vermont has set a goal of getting 90% of its electricity from renewable generation by the year 2050. And Neil Lunderville, the general manager of the Burlington Electric Department, says getting electricity from renewable sources is simply more expensive, at least in the short term. As a state, we've made a very conscious, overt, directed push toward renewables. And we ultimately have had to subsidize in order to get them stood up. You know, there's a cost to that that gets borne by ratepayers. 
though at least some state policies have partially shielded Vermonters from those costs. Still, Sandra Levine with the Conservation Law Foundation in Vermont, an environmental group, says people should think beyond those upfront costs. Compare it to an energy-efficient light bulb that may be a slightly more expensive upfront cost, but it lasts longer and uses less electricity. So over the lifetime of that light bulb, there's significant savings to the customer. The same is true with renewable energy for Vermonters and for all of New England. Along those lines, Matthew White with ISO New England, he's one of the folks who oversees the electricity highway, he says there's another thing that drives up electricity prices in Vermont and in New England. New England long ago made a commitment to a lot of essentially trying to clean up its environment, to doing a better job of of weatherizing homes for lower-income households, and to broadly promoting what, what the industry calls energy efficiency. Energy efficiency. Now, if that rings a little personal finance bell somewhere in the back of your mind, that's because the phrase actually shows up as a line item on your monthly electric bill. Vermont launched an energy efficiency program back in 1999, the first of its kind in the country. And those little charges that pay for it are actually mandated by state law. And Asa Hopkins with the Department of Public Service says it comes with a cost, kind of. Our rates may be higher because you have to pay for the efficiency programs and because we're using less electricity to cover some of the fixed costs of the, of the system. But there's fewer units, so the overall bills can still actually be lower. That is lower than they would be if there were no efficiency programs. So to recap, because that was all just a, a little bit confusing, Hopkins is saying efficiency programs do boost electricity prices in New England because you got to cover the cost of those programs, like spreading the word about LED light bulbs or winterizing homes. Vermont's programs are paid for based on how much electricity people are using, but the programs are also teaching people to use less electricity so their bills are lower. Make sense? Anyway, it seems to be working. When you look at federal data, your average Vermonter's electricity consumption has steadily decreased since 1999. Okay. Man, I am getting sick of driving. I know, it's been a long trip. But before we're done, didn't you say that electricity in Vermont was actually cheaper than other parts of New England? Yeah, part of that is efficiency programs that we've been talking about. Electricity actually gets cheaper when you don't stress out the grid during high demand times. Oh, so is that why you see like PSAs about turning down your air conditioner yeah, in summer? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Another reason gets into the way we regulate utility companies. Vermont utilities are encouraged to buy long-term power contracts, which sounds kind of wonky, but it means they don't ride the ups and downs of the market as much, and that means prices are more stable, but it can kind of cut both ways. Regulation is a pretty Byzantine system. There's a lot of debate about it right now in Vermont. I'd encourage folks to check out reporting from my colleague Taylor Dobbs over at VPR.net. Oh, we're running late. We still have to do a second question. Oh, God. Can you drop question. me out of the studio? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, let's go. Okay, thanks. Later. Bye. Oh, okay. Sorry I'm late. That piece was reported and produced by Alex Keefe. And if you're wondering what's with natural gas prices in Vermont, we've got that story at bravelittlestate.org. And while you're there, you can also find a breakdown of all those line item charges on your utility bills. So check it out.
We're going to get to that second question as soon as possible. But first, thanks again to the VPR Journalism Fund and to our sponsor, Darn Tough Vermont, needing premium quality all-weather performance socks for all of life's active pursuits. Still made locally in Northfield, Vermont, and guaranteed for life. Visit them at darntough.com. So our second question this month comes from a brave resident of the Upper Valley. My name is Allison Litton. I live in Wilder, Vermont. Allison came to us with a question about a particular kind of Vermont story. What are Vermont's most interesting, intriguing, bizarre, mysterious ghost stories? One of my favorite shows when I was little was Unsolved Mysteries. And so I guess that interest in beyond the human world um, has been with me forever. To help answer this question, we summoned Thea Lewis. She's one of Vermont's resident experts on ghost stories. Go out into the outer reaches of Vermont and you just find all these great tentacles of um, haunted lore. Thea is the creator of Queen City Ghost Walk in Burlington and the author of several collections of Vermont ghost stories. Uh, Just the Revolutionary War history alone brings us ghosts like Mad Anthony Wayne, who haunts the fort at Ticonderoga, but also apparently Lake Memphremagog up in the Northeast Kingdom. We've got Ethan Allen, who claimed that he, when he died, was going to come back as a magnificent white steed. And indeed, folks have seen this wonderful white horse galloping along the Intervale lands where he used to make his home. We barely have time to scratch the surface of the Vermont ghost story canon in today's episode. So right now we're scheming a Halloween special with stories submitted by all of you. We'll explain that more later on. For now, turn off your lights and settle in for this one local classic from Thea Lewis. Some of my favorite ghost stories are the ones where a spirit will communicate something important to the living through a dream. Now, this was the case back in the 1840s. There was a guy named Eugene Clifford who had moved to Fairfield, Vermont. And people were a little suspicious of this guy. He seemed like a shady character, but also he was a deserter from the British Army. So there he was, set up housekeeping there in Fairfield, and uh, not being very well liked by the general population, except for one woman, an Irish woman, and her name was Elizabeth Guilford. Now, it wasn't too long before he and Elizabeth got married and had a small child, but Clifford had a wandering eye. Pretty soon, he set his sights on another widow who lived on the other side of Fairfield Pond, a widow even wealthier than his wife, who had been left by her first husband 10 acres of land and a prosperous farm. Well, this guy had loose lips, and one night, sitting around the fire at a local inn or tavern, he happened to speculate whether he would inherit his wife's wealth free and clear if something were to happen to her and the child. Wouldn't you know it, a couple of weeks later, he came in on a brilliant, sunny October day and said to his wife, pack up the baby, I'm going to take you out on an excursion on the pond, we're going to go out in the canoe. Well, she did grab the baby, she was so excited to be having this day out with her family, but before she left the house, she grabbed a prized shawl that she had. It had been a gift from a relative in Ireland, and folks in the town had been accustomed to seeing her wear it on special occasions. They went out, got into the canoe, and pushed off with a few of the townspeople on the shore, waving goodbye to them. 
They were gone for about three hours. But afterward, the husband came back to the shore alone. He was beside himself and staggering and weeping and weeping. The people rushed up to him and said, what's wrong? Where's Elizabeth? Where's the baby? And he said, oh, no, it's so terrible. There we were, out on the lake, and a wind kicked up, and she tried to move her shawl to give the baby better coverage, and the canoe tipped, and they both fell out. I searched and searched, but could not find them. Well, the townspeople immediately took up and went out to search for this woman and the baby, but it grew dark, and they couldn't find them. And then the next morning, they started again. And after a while, Elizabeth and the baby were found. Elizabeth was about, oh, I don't know, 50 yards from shore and about 12 feet of water, and the baby was up on dry land. Well, people in the town just felt horrible, bereft, and they were so confused about how this could have happened. And one woman in the town, a woman named Abigail, who'd been a friend of Elizabeth's, said to the guy, what about the shawl, that shawl that she loved so much? Where, where is that? And he snapped at her, how would I know? Well, people heard his response to Abigail. And then they put two and two together and remembered that he had been talking about what would happen if Elizabeth should pass away. He would inherit all her wealth. So uh, the constable gathered him up and brought him to the Hoosgau where he was kept. Um, but they thought so little evidence they might only be able to keep him overnight. Well, Abigail was upset. And at home that night, she had fitful, fitful sleep, but she dreamed before she woke that she was being led by someone through pastures and fields and through wooded areas to a place where there was a big hollow tree. Once she got to the tree, there was a flat stone inside and beneath that flat stone, the prized shawl. When she woke, she was just absolutely going crazy, trying to tell her husband what her dream had meant. And he said, no, dear, you're just too upset. This was a, a good friend. Um, it was nothing but a dream. That's how you're working out your grief. Well, she went next door and talked to the farmer, who was a neighbor, and he agreed to go with her to where she thought this tree was located. They set off through the woods and through the pastures, and then finally they got to this other wooded area where they found the hollow tree. And she looked at the man and she said, there is no way I can reach inside that tree. Please go and check. He walked up to the tree and he lifted out the flat stone and then reached his arm down into the tree and there was the shawl. Well, back in those days, this was enough evidence to convict this guy. And so they did convict him. But ever since, Fairfield Pond has been called Dream Lake because of Abigail's dream. And people will say sometimes in mid-fall when she passed away, they will see the apparition of a mother and a baby all wrapped up in a beautiful silk shawl walking along the shores of Fairfield Pond. Dream Lake. Huge thanks to Thea Lewis for sharing that story with us. There's more where that came from in our forthcoming Halloween special. 
which is only going to be good if you all share your favorite Vermont ghost stories with us so we can make a little compilation. Maybe there's a haunted building in your town or a spooky landmark like Dream Lake. We want to hear your best creepy telling. Find the details at bravelittlestate.org. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast this month. And don't forget to submit your own questions about Vermont over at bravelittlestate.org. And while you're there, you can also vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Journalism Fund and from Darn Tough Vermont. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music in this episode by Poddington Bear, Rui, and Dr. Turtle. Here at VPR, there are lots of people who make the podcast possible. This month, a very special shout out to news director John Dillon, who is VPR's medium to the spine-tingling dimension of utility regulation and energy policy. We'll be back next month when I take on a question about Vermont's Abenaki community. I think we're doing way better than we were in the past. I think there's still long ways to go. Until then, leave us a review in iTunes because, you know, we hear that makes a pretty big difference for podcasts that are new on the block. And remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.